So good to be together this morning. Thank you, worship team, for leading us into God's presence. All right, kids, uh, we will let you head off to your ministry time. So preschoolers through elementary grade four. Elementary kids, you can make your way to the right. Preschoolers, make your way to the left. And thank you, kids, for worshiping with us this morning. And may God bless you as you continue to learn more of the Lord. Well, just quickly here at the beginning, I would like to give uh, some updates on our PMC 2022 vision initiatives. Uh, We've been working towards several ministry goals here in this year, and uh, just a a big shout out to all of you for uh, your involvement in making these things happen. But uh, in regards to our initiative on connections and relationships, we, we did a kind of a trial run with Wednesday night meals here in the spring, and and you responded in, in incredible ways. That was just a, a very uh, special time of relationship, connection, and building. And, and uh, just again, thank you for all your part in that. We are running through our evaluations and, and uh, just looking ahead to what that could look like for the fall. Uh, you can expect a survey to be coming to you just to give your input regarding uh, Wednesday night meals. But again, we're, uh, Lord willing, uh, looking forward to hopefully being able to do that again uh, in the fall. Also, we identified as a vision initiative counseling, and uh, we are in partnership with uh, Crossroads Church and In-Step Counseling Ministry. And, and I know that uh, we have at least one PMC member that has already completed uh, the online counselor training, and uh, she is already meeting with clients. There are a couple of others that are in the training process, and I'm just here to say this morning, it's not too late, not too late for anyone who is feeling nudged by the Holy Spirit to get involved in this. Again, there is a great need uh, for counseling ministry, just being able to meet one-on-one with people and and share the gospel, share the good news of Jesus, uh, give wisdom and guidance and discernment from God's Word. And this is just really what counseling is, what this particular in-step counseling ministry looks like. So if God is nudging you to do that, uh, please see me or you can contact Ashley Zimmerman from Crossroads Church. Also, at our last church council meeting, uh, we approved a new ministry called Neighbors Helping Neighbors, and uh, I'm just going to put a little teaser out this morning. I'm not going to give you all the details, but this will be happening in August. It is a ministry to come alongside families throughout Fulton County that um, need assistance with back-to-school supplies. Uh, the, the ministry is, is very one-on-one oriented and kind of discipleship oriented, and I think it's going to just be uh, a very good fit for our uh, vision and our mission here at PMC. Again, this is a partnership with uh, Crossroads and other churches in Fulton County, and uh, I'm excited that Katie Meyer has agreed to be the point person. So uh, just again, know that there's going to be more information coming, and there will be uh, opportunities for all of us to be involved with that. Also, uh, One Voice Ministry. Uh, There's a lot of exciting things happening there, and I uh, will probably share more of that later on in the future, but 
God is just opening some incredible doors uh, for this ministry this summer and this fall, and uh, we're just uh, trusting God to use one voice to uh, help connect people to the living God of the universe. And so, uh, just continue to be in prayer for one voice. Let, let me just pray for our vision initiatives and for PMC. Join me, please. Spirit of God, we thank you for the vision that you've given to PMC. We want to be about uh, your mission, what you are uniquely calling us to do. And I do pray and ask, uh, Lord, that you would continue to raise up uh, counselors from PMC to, to be uh, your hands and your feet and your voice, to be able to help people who are in difficult situations, to give them biblical guidance and biblical wisdom and biblical discernment. Uh, God, I just pray that you would uh, just, again, raise up the needed counselors for this ministry. God, I pray that relationships and connections can continue to happen here in the body of Christ, uh, the, just that we um, can love each other and value each other and so desperately lean on each other in these last days. God, I pray too for neighbors helping neighbors. I pray for one voice. I pray for uh, children's ministry, preschool ministry, youth ministry, lots of ministries, God, that are uh, truly about our mission here of giving ourselves to you and leading others to Jesus and walking together in the love of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that we can be about this. We can be about it with clarity and with grace and compassion. And I pray this all in your mighty name. Amen. I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the New Testament book of James, James chapter 1. And let me begin with a couple of questions. What does real faith look like? What does real faith look like, especially in the 21st century here in America where we are living in a post-Christian culture? What does real faith look like? I believe these are important questions to ask and even more important for us to answer because the world is watching They're watching us as we live out our faith. They are watching to see if our relationship with Jesus really, really makes a difference. As Christians, we have an incredible responsibility to show the world what real faith looks like. Not a perfect faith, but a faith that is genuine, true, authentic, a faith that points people to Jesus. Starting a new series today from the book of James, and this book is one of the best when it comes to teaching what real faith is. James is going to touch on common, everyday topics, things we deal with day in and week in. 
just to give a little background on this New Testament book. The author is James, the younger half-brother of Jesus. We know that Mary and Joseph had additional children after the birth of Christ. The Gospels refer to Jesus' family, his siblings, and James was one of them. And James did not believe that his older brother was the Messiah, the Son of God. It wasn't until after the cross and Jesus' resurrection that James came to that point of belief. And once he believed, he remained steadfast, and he took leadership positions, particularly the church in Jerusalem, and led God's people. By the time James is writing this letter, his persecution has come to the church. Believers that were in Jerusalem are now scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And James writes as encouragement to them. He wants his brothers and sisters in Christ to stay the course, to remain strong and steadfast and loyal, even under hardship and toil and suffering. He wants her faith to be unshakable. He wants the church to always, always trust God and the goodness of God. Throughout church history, the book of James has received both praise and criticism. Many people love the book of James. They love it because, again, it's very practical. It's very down-to-earth. It doesn't have deep theological concepts like what the Apostle Paul writes in his letters. It's a very easy book to read, very easy to understand. It's filled with word pictures and illustrations that relate to ordinary people. At the same time, the book of James has received its share of criticism. You will not find in it any mention of Jesus' death on the cross, His atonement for sin, His resurrection from the grave. Critics also talk about the lack of flow, the lack of organizational thought, James seems to jump quickly from topic to topic to topic. And there seems to be no ending to the letter, rather it stops abruptly. Of all the criticism of the book, probably none is greater than the alleged contradictions to the teachings of the Apostle Paul. We know that Paul championed 
the teaching of justification by faith alone. I mean, Paul was passionate about this. It was probably more important to him than anything else about the gospel. The fact that no one could add anything to the cross. No one could add anything to the free gift of grace as extended to us from Jesus. Again, it was a time of transition for the early believers. Many of them had been raised in Judaism, and so they were very accustomed to the sacrifices, the ceremonial washings, things that were all Old Covenant. And then Jesus comes and introduces the New Covenant. And you had a mixing of old and new. And Paul is adamant that the gospel is by grace alone, that you can add nothing to it, no works of man can save. We get to the book of James, and in chapter 2, verse 24, James says that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Some of the reason why this book receives some criticism. We'll talk more in a couple weeks about this alleged contradiction. But again, it's some of the things that have been written in concern about this particular book. In fact, the reformer Martin Luther probably had the harshest words to say about the book of James. He says, quote, that James mangles the Scriptures and that it's a letter of straw. In other words, this book is of no value. It has no wheat in it. It is only straw and chaff. But the book of James, it's here. It's here in the holy canon of Scripture. It is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. And I believe there's so much to love about the book of James. And I believe God's Spirit's going to use our study in this book to build and grow our faith. It's going to instruct us how to live out our faith in this very post-Christian culture we live in. So I believe it's going to be very helpful for us in fulfilling our mission and our vision here at PMC. Well, this morning I'm going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. I'm not going to read through all 18 verses uh, in a row. Uh, Rather, I'm going to kind of break it down section by section. I've chosen the theme of real faith for these 18 verses. And so, I'll start off with my point and then read the verses that correlate to it. So, as we start off here... In the first four verses, on this topic of real faith, real faith calculates 
the spiritual benefits of trials. Let's look at what James says to the early believers. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James refers to the various trials, and so I'm sure this is what he means. It's trials that happen in our everyday lives, trials that happen because we live in a fallen world, trials that come simply from living life might even be something like just having a hard day at work, a bad day at work kind of a thing. Got a quick video to show. You might relate to some of these things because I know I've had bad days at work and I'm sure you've had as well. So go ahead and watch the screen. day when you cut a tree down and it lands on your house. Trials of various kinds, things that just happen in our everyday lives, but also trials that come because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that we bear and carry the name of Jesus. That certainly is the situation with the early believers. They faced hard, hard times. They were being persecuted. They were driven out of Jerusalem. They ended up in the remote countryside and villages, and they had a hard time making ends meet. They lived on the edge of poverty. It was extremely hard being a Christian. And James uses the word count. Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. The word count is a financial term. It means to evaluate. And that's why I listed as my first point, real faith calculates 
Again, it's, it's, a, it's a financial term, calculates the spiritual benefits. James is saying we have to look at the hardships of life from God's perspective. We need to see it through the lens that God sees it and that God is using these trials to build us spiritually, to build us in the faith. God uses trials to to shape our character. He uses those trials to to develop perseverance. He uses the trials to, to grow us in spiritual maturity so we don't stay as infants. God allows trials to to shape us and to make us better. Now, every one of us in this room have experienced trials. Every one of us have experienced hard times. And in those times, if you're like me, you feel overwhelmed, you feel broken, you feel bruised, you feel beaten up, might even feel crushed. And you feel nothing but pain. That's all you feel is pain. And we wonder in that moment, can we keep going? We don't see any spiritual benefits. When I was a kid, I was in a farming accident. I was helping my grandpa unload ear corn out of the wagon and onto the elevator and that it was then taking the ear corn into the crib. So again, the fact that we're talking ears of corn and corn cribs says how long ago this was. But um, I, was, I was really young. I was probably about five years old, and, and I was really close to the elevator, and I got too close to the belt pulley, and my little finger got caught in the belt pulley and, and severed off the tip. Well, my parents took me quickly to the doctor's office, and he sewed it back together, and obviously there was concern if I would lose my finger or not, and one of the biggest concerns was infection. And so, my doctor told my mom and dad that Kent needed to put his finger in water and Epsom salt every night. And I still remember this day, the pain of doing that. Again, my, my finger was wounded. It was, op- it, it was closed, but still that salt water would seep in. And there were times I could barely, barely do it. And my parents, they sat with me at the kitchen table when I did this. Um, they loved me, they tried to reason with me why I needed to do it, but at five years old, I didn't see any benefit at all, none whatsoever. All I knew was that it hurt. All I could feel was the pain. And even though they were with me, and, and again, they, they, they were there for me, and they empathized with me, and they encouraged me, and they loved me, and 
helped me do it. Um, but it was hard because all I felt was the pain, and I didn't see any benefit at all. But after it was all done, and now looking back, I see the benefit. The benefit is my finger was saved. I didn't get any infection in it, and it healed very, very nicely. James tells us that real faith calculates the spiritual benefits. I don't believe James is telling us to pretend that every trial is fun. I don't think James is telling us to put on our happy face. No, we simply need to count, we need to calculate, we need to consider, okay, what might God be doing in this situation? What might God be doing within us? What areas of our life is God pruning? What is God doing to shape us in our character? What is God doing in that spiritual formation? What is God developing us to become? That's what James is talking about here. Real faith calculates the spiritual benefits of the hardship. Point number two, real faith sees God at work and remains fiercely committed to Him. This is in verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Well, what's James talking about here when he is referring to a double-minded person? I think of it this way. I think of somebody that's trying to hedge their bets two ways. So, on the one hand, they'll ask God for wisdom, but on the other hand, they'll also check out other ways to get through the hardship. A double-minded person will spend some time looking in the Bible, but then also checking, okay, what does the world say in this situation, and how would the world respond? It's trying to keep a foot in God's Word and a foot in the world at the same time. 
I believe Judas Iscariot is a good example of a double-minded man. He hedged his bet on Jesus being the Messiah, but the Messiah he was looking for was not the Messiah that Jesus had been called by God to be. Jesus was not the political, military Messiah that Judas wanted. So when he saw that that hedge was not working out, he went to the other side. I don't believe that James is saying here that we'll never have a doubt or we'll never have a spiritual struggle, that we'll never have a question that we ask God. I don't think that's what James is saying here. But James is saying, don't be double-minded. Keep your focus in a single place. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Seek God's wisdom. And that's the exhortation. When you're in the hardship, when you're in the trial, pray and ask God for wisdom. And the promise is that God will give it. God will give us what we need, the wisdom we need for today, the wisdom we need for tomorrow, and the wisdom we need for the day after that. Real faith sees God at work and remains fiercely committed to Him. Moving on to point number three. Real faith values relationship with God over economics. Let's look at verses 9 through 12. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. James is writing to believers who are on both ends of the economic spectrum. Many of the believers in the early church were poor, especially in light of the persecution, of being driven out of their homes and and being forced to live in new places and, and find new occupations. There was great amount of poverty. But at the same time, there were a few who were wealthy, a few who were very well-to-do, and James is writing to both. He's not excluding either group. And he is saying, I don't care where you fall in this economic line, but your relationship with God better be preeminent. That is what matters the most. Again, it doesn't matter what side you're on or what group you're in. There are challenges. There are obstacles to faith. If you're on the economic poverty side, you're wondering, where is God? Why isn't He helping me? Why isn't He 
blessing me with my needs? Why am I struggling to even get enough to eat for me and my family? And then the rich, their struggles are more on the fact that, well, I have everything I need. I guess I really don't need God. I don't need a relationship with Him. I'm fine. I've got everything I really need in this life. But James is saying, your relationship with God through Jesus is truly the most important thing. Moving on to point number four. Real faith recognizes the enticement of sin and the consequences of sin. Verses 13 through 15, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Again, the context that James is writing this is in regards to the trials and hardships under a persecuted church. And in that situation, as Christians, we may find ourselves questioning God, questioning His love for us, questioning His goodness. And when we're in that place of questioning, that is prime opportunity for our enemy Satan to come in. And the thing that Satan loves to do is just dangle the bait in front of us, enticing us to sin. I mean, that's really what James is saying here in verse 14. We are lured, we are enticed by our own sinful, selfish desires. Just as a fisherman will put bait on a hook and cast it into the lake, that fish only sees the bait. The fish never, never sees the hook. But as soon as he bites onto the bait... He's hooked and he's caught. And that's exactly how Satan works in our lives. He dangles the bait. We never see the hook. We don't see the consequences of sinful actions. We only see the immediate pleasure that's in front of us. It's exactly how it was with King David when he walked on top of his roof That one night, he saw down below a very beautiful woman bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. And Satan dangled the bait, and King David did not see the hook. He took the bait, and as you know, he suffered great consequences for that sin. 
He experienced grace. He experienced forgiveness. He experienced the love of God in incredible ways. But he also experienced the consequences of his choice. Lastly, number five. Real faith rests in the unchanging nature of our God. We see this in verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be the kind of firstfruits of His creatures. We serve an amazing, awesome, mighty God, a God who truly never, never, never changes. Every aspect of God's nature is the same. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's nature is always loving and compassionate and merciful. And God's nature is always righteous and all. <clears throat> excuse me, always righteous and holy and just. That nature never, never changes. And so we can rest in that, especially when we're in these places of hardship and trial. Trust God and His good gifts and His grace and His mercy to you. I want to wrap up this morning by just having a a guided time of prayer. I want you to just pray right where you are in your seats. I want you just to um, have just some one-on-one time with the Lord. I've got three areas that I'd like for us to to pray for this morning. First of all, I, I want you to pray for someone who is going through a very hard, difficult time. I'm sure you can easily think of someone, maybe a family member, maybe a neighbor, maybe a coworker. This person can be a believer. It can be an unbeliever. But I want you to pray. Pray for someone going through a difficult time. If they are a believer, pray that they will see This as a time of testing, they'll see things from God's perspective, that they will see spiritual benefits that are coming from it. Pray that their spiritual muscles will be strengthened. If this person is a non-believer, pray that they will come to that point of faith and belief in Jesus Christ. So go ahead right now, over the next 30 seconds. Pray. Pray for this person that God's Spirit has put in front of you, this person in in front of your mind. Pray for this person by name. Go ahead and pray right now.
Amen. Next, I would like for us to pray for the church and future challenges. I believe there's going to be some difficult days that are ahead of us. I'm not an alarmist. I'm not into conspiracy theories. But I see so much going on in the world right now that's a cause for concern regarding difficulties and hardships and trials. We saw two years ago shortages in the grocery stores due to the COVID crisis. And we thought, oh, that was just then. That'll never happen again. But here we are, yet another shortage. Families that have infant children and those children who are in need of formula to supplement um, breast milk or because of allergic reactions, whatever, just needing the formula. And, and there is formula shortages everywhere. You just scratch your head. What's going on? We see inflation just... Every time you pull into the gas pump, you know what it's like. Every one of us is spending more money at the gas pump than we ever have in our lifetime. And there's no end in sight. I just feel like there is such upheaval and chaos right now that things aren't going to get better. Things will probably get worse. And as a church, we better be prepared for the challenging days that are ahead of us. The Bible says that a day is coming when a loaf of bread will cost a day's wage. That day might be sooner than what we think. Not saying any of this to scare us. Not saying this to, to put fear into your hearts and, and you go into a state of panic. That's not at all. That's not my purpose. It's not my intent. I simply believe that part of my responsibility as a pastor is to be the watchman on the wall and to express warnings when I see challenges ahead. Just as when we're driving down the road and the road is closed because of a bridge being out, there are warning signs, there are flashing lights telling us what's ahead. I do believe that difficult days are ahead because we have never seen in the, history of a wor- in, in the history of the world an affluent nation that has not fallen. Every affluent nation of the world 
has crumbled. So the Spirit of God is saying to the church, prepare. Prepare. The time is near for the church to be more proactive with growing our own food. It's time to be planting gardens. It's time to be canning food. It's time to learn about butchering. It's time to have a pantry in your basement with extra food supplies. You may think I'm crazy, you may think I'm all wet, and that's fine. I just see all the upheaval going on around us, and I believe the church needs to awaken from her slumber, and we need to be prepared for the end times. And in these end times, the opportunities for mission are going to be more than ever. And so let's be the church. Let's take the gospel to the people who need it. So let's pray. Pray right now. Pray over the next 30 seconds for the church. Pray for a PMC. Pray that we can be about the mission. Go ahead and pray right now. Amen. Lastly, I'd like for us to pray for the persecuted church. This is, again, the context of James 1. He's writing to the believers who are experiencing hardships because of their faith, because they carry the name of Jesus with them. And right now, there are Christians all across the world who are suffering because of their Christian faith. There are Christians suffering in China. There are Christians suffering in Afghanistan. There are Christians suffering in India and Africa. I had a video that I was going to show you, but it's too lengthy and it will go take us too late. Um, But all I can say is that we need to be in prayer for brothers and sisters all across the world because they are truly under great, great pressure. And it's our responsibility to hold them up in prayer. So let's do that right now. Pray for the persecuted church. Maybe God's Spirit will direct you to a certain country. Maybe God will have you pray for China. Maybe God will have you pray for Korea. Maybe God will have you pray for one of the Middle East countries, but go ahead right now, next 30 seconds, pray. Pray for the persecuted church.
Lord Jesus, we do pray for our brothers and sisters across the world, those who are in prison, those who are in concentration camps, those who have been exiled from their families, those who are experiencing the loss of employment, those who are hungry and hurting because they boldly claim the name of Jesus. Bless them today, Lord Jesus. Encourage them. Strengthen them. Surround them with your presence. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would direct us at Pettisville Missionary to be the church in these last days, that we'd be very mindful of what you're doing, that we can be right in step with you, that we can be fully about giving ourselves to you and leading others to your son Jesus and walking together in the love of the Holy Spirit. Pray your blessing on each one. We thank you, Jesus, that you know us each by name. Thank you for a love that is unconditional and never-ending. We pray all this in your glorious and mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Have a wonderful, blessed day. I love you all. There's a million things that I don't understand. I'm just being honest, God. Was it all part of your plan? No, I wouldn't change a thing. Even though I hate the memory, you give me a burden that you said you'd help me carry. I know you're working all.